Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I certainly hope in those years to build a society of opportunity. By that, I mean an open society, a society in which what people fulfill will depend upon their talent, their application, and their good fortune. In particular, I want to see us build a country that is at ease with itself, a country that is confident, and a country that is prepared and willing to make the changes necessary to provide a better quality of life for all our citizens. It's November 1990. In the wake of disastrous local election results and public protests against the poll tax, Margaret Thatcher is forced out of office by her parliamentary party. The resulting leadership election is won by a former banker who left school at 16, the unassuming Chancellor of the Exchequer, John Major. Major's first act is to scrap the poll tax, funding it with the introduction of council tax and a rise in VAT. Much to the surprise of the bookmakers, his own MPs and the Labour Party, he wins the 1992 election, securing a fourth term in power for the Conservatives. But less than six months later, the country is thrown into economic chaos when the pound is forced to drop out of the exchange rate mechanism, a monetary compact with the German Deutschmark. Black Wednesday, as it is called, shatters the Conservative reputation for economic competence and extends the opposition Labour Party's lead. The years that follow are years of turmoil as the Conservative Party begins to split over Europe and major struggles to contain the divisions. But amid the crisis, Major does negotiate a significant intervention in the Northern Irish peace process. The Downing Street Declaration, a joint statement with the Irish Taoiseach, declares Northern Ireland's right to self-determination and helps to pave the way for the Good Friday Agreement. Major also manages to secure a series of opt-outs from the Maastricht Treaty, which narrowly passes Parliament under his watch. But the economic upheaval and Conservative civil war, coupled with the newly popular Labour Party, are too much to overcome. The Conservative Party goes down to its worst defeat since 1832, and Major resigns as party leader the next morning. I'm John Elledge. And I'm Stephen Bush. Welcome to Prime Ministerial. don't you? It is true. John Major is actually the first political leader I was a fan of. How old were you at this point? I would have been uh, slightly less than two for most of the run-up to the 1992 election. My mum tried very hard to get me to learn Neil Kinnock's name. It's one of those weird things where I don't remember the incident, but I, I very vividly remember the feeling. Yeah, kind of like, look, there's Neil Kinnock. I just would not have it. But whenever John Major would appear on, on radio or at my childminder's television, my eyes would light up like hubcaps and I'd go, oh, there's that John Major. There's that nice John Major. And my mum would obviously be sitting there with this pram, watching her child bounce up and down, being like, there's that nice man who only a couple of months later would say that we should understand a little less and condemn a little more, going, what, what have I raised? And the odd thing is, I really strongly remember feeling an incredible sense of warmth towards him what do you think the appeal was because generally speaking children like colorful things don't they and of all the many characteristics you could say john major has colorful really isn't one of them well this is one of the things like she spoke to my mom about the fact we were doing this and she kind of said what she never understood about it it's just i could never get how you could tell 
you know, how could you tell <laughs> that one was John Major, right? You know, it's, she said, you know, obviously it would have been more unnerving if it had been Michael Heseltine or, you know, Peter Lilly, but at least they were people with sort of... A, Distinguishing characteristics. Ca- yeah. I think it's also... Uh, I, I discussed this on Twitter relatively recently, and a lot of people of, of a similar age uh, came out as secret Major fans as children, and the kind of common theory we realised might be that um, that type of sort of big NHS specs of the type that I realised that I myself am now wearing as a boring hipster, that my grandfather wore, and a lot of these people's grandfathers wore, were the type he wore. So maybe... Do you think it's just like he's a bit like your granddad? Yeah, maybe he just had a kind of grandfatherly vibe. So I'm a bit older than you. 1992 is the first election that I was remotely engaged with like one of my earliest political memories is my family having a blazing row about it that easter because my my family uh, is pretty much politically split down the middle and loves nothing better than a good barney and i don't want to sort of lean into the thing where like the lefties think that the new statesman is run by a bunch of tories these days but i in 1992 aged 11 was under the impression the tories were the goodies because my dad told me they were And my sort of engagement with the major government, which we're going to talk about now, is sort of my gradual political awakening and realising that actually, no, this is this is not going well. This is a disaster brought about by some pretty nasty, selfish people in many ways. And actually, I kind of prefer the other lot. Oh, that's interesting because it's also so 1992. I don't remember there being an election. I remember. I mean, having, you were like a, a year and a half old yeah, or something. So. I, I remember being aware that we were a Labour household, and I remember being able to stay up till yeah eleven o'clock or something during the 1997 election. Uh, and those are really my only political memories of the period. Now, what I remember very clearly is. The sense of unfolding chaos. Like, I don't remember, like, Black Wednesday specifically. I sort of think I've got memories of it because I later watched episodes of Drop the Dead Donkey or something where they're making jokes of it. But I don't think I was aware of it at the time. But as that period went on, particularly when you get to sort of 94, 95, 96, I was very aware that it was a very unstable government that was probably going to lose. Like, I remember the, the Redwood Challenge. I remember the the feeling that Tony Blair was going to not save us, but he was definitely going to be the next prime minister and feeling quite good about that. And I do remember very clearly, by about the end of 1995, wanting the Tories out. It's strange, because the other sort of bit of memory I have of that period is, of course, to slightly dabble in modern-day politics, the thing about London then that London has slightly returned to, which is endemic homelessness and rough rough sleeping. No, there was a definite sense of the public realm decaying. You know, not having an entry phone in our block yet, and just kind of a general sense of tattiness, which of course is weirdly, I think, one of the things that we have now is a general sense of mm. tattiness and decay. I mean, this was the era when people were talking about cardboard city and so on. It's like, you know, there were very clear homeless encampments on the embankment, which a couple of years ago would have felt like something from a dystopian novel, but now does seem to be coming back to us. The thought occurs to me that we can probably only get so far in this discussion of, of the record of the major administration by comparing childhood memories. Should we talk to someone who actually worked in it? Why not? So these days, Jonathan Hill goes by the title of Baron Hill of Orford, and he was a former European commissioner, as well as an education minister during the coalition. But back in the 1990s, he was an advisor to John Major. So we thought we'd ask him what that was like. So I started off in the number 10 policy unit. Uh, I did that until uh, just before the 92 general election. Uh, Then I became John Major's political secretary, ran his own campaign during the 92 election, and then stayed on as as political secretary after that. And... It was the sort of second wind for that Tory government. There was the, obviously the crisis in 1990 that forced Margaret Thatcher out. What was it like kind of coming into to something that was kind of new, but also continuity with what had gone before? You've put your finger on the challenge that John Major had, which is, and I think people forget, they look at the premiership from the perspective of 97 or post Black Wednesday. And they tend to forget the period that there was from November 90 until September 92, when the challenge Major had was how do you keep a very divided party together? They had to construct a new policy to replace the community charge, uh, which most people call the poll tax. And uh, there were uh, quite a lot of economic challenges. There were foreign policy challenges. So 
that first period, actually from a party management point of view and a political point of view, winning an election that no one thought was winnable and keeping together a party that everyone thought after uh, Mrs T was overthrown would be incapable of holding together is a pretty significant political managerial achievement. I think one of the things that probably was striking that the systems that were run at number 10 were very much a continuation of how the system had worked under Mrs Thatcher. The big change on that came with Tony Blair in 97, where there was a lot of centralisation. But at that point, the challenge, as you also say, was how, how do you keep things together that so makes it feel continuous for the party, but for the electorate... How do you demonstrate that things have changed from the style of Mrs Thatcher? Well, let's talk about how the administration did that. To what extent did John Major see himself as kind of continuing Thatcherism? And to what extent was he kind of consciously trying to carve out a different path? Yeah, in practice, it didn't feel like that in a considered way day to day. I mean, I think if you look at certain areas, so if you look at uh, European policy, there clearly was a conscious attempt to signal a different approach on Europe from the one that had been before. Uh, Economically, it felt pretty much a story of continuation. The policies that there were around um, the size of the state, privatisation, tax, that all felt very familiar. And some of the reforms that started to come into place to do with public service reform, which at the time were kind of decried, certainly by some in the Tory party, is you either do privatisation or you do nothing. But the introduction of things like league tables, the Citizens' Charter, the roots of trying to make public services more accountable, give the citizens slightly more control over things, that started in 91-92. Long-running governments often get to the point where it's difficult to renew in office because everyone's tired and they've just they've done the things they set out to do. Was there ever any sense of running out of road in policy terms and trying to do... I mean, if you look at the privatisation, sort of the obvious ones had been done and you get to things like rail privatisation, which was more difficult and remains problematic to many people like was there a sense of like desperately trying to keep things going when when the wee ideas are gone no i don't think it felt like that i mean i think i think the difference really is and it's true of any government what political authority does that government a government have to set about doing what it wants to do i don't think the issue was so much has it run out of intellectual steam although it's clearly true by the mid late 90s it had run out of political steam it had run out of willpower it had run out of the desire to stay in office and I think I'm a great believer in how people behave and I, I would say that by 97 for a number of cabinet ministers the thought of carrying on in government was even more awful than the thought of going into opposition and you know that way that political parties often think oh well okay we've had a good run let's go off we'll go into opposition the other lot will mess it up we've got five years to reboot ourselves and then the um you know a, a grateful public will say please come back come back and, and uh, it took 13 years 18 if you count the time before you got the majority again <laughs> So actually, on the kind of idea of whether or not a government should do something, one of the historically odd things about Major is no other Conservative leader had a predecessor who bequeathed to him an ism. There was obviously no Macmillanism or Churchillism. Obviously, there were many ways in which he was a difficult predecessor to have. But how much did you feel an, an ideological overshadowing as well as a kind of vocal backseat driver overshadowing? I, I think because of Thatcher and Thatcherism... People, particularly commentators, had got accustomed to the idea that that's how it sort of has to be. And if it's not Thatcherism, well, then, you know, majorism, it can't measure up in any way. And I I think you're right in your question that Thatcher was the aberration. And normally in our system, we're not very big on philosophy and ideology. You know, we're not French. You know, we didn't really have Blairism or Brownism or Cameroonianism or Mayism. 
So I don't think there was a kind of sense of intellectual inferiority because I think it had reverted much more to not just traditional kind of conservative approaches, but traditional British government approaches, which are sort of pragmatic. But you're right, there, there was criticism of him, particularly from the right and from the conservative press, because the old battle within the Conservative Party, you know, it, it was carrying on being fought in, in, in new forms. And he was a proxy, or we were a proxy, for why aren't you Mrs Thatcher? And um, why did she have to go? What about the sort of management style? Whether there were ideological shifts or not, there was certainly a change in approach, wasn't there? I think there was. I mean, I think there are descriptions of the first cabinet that he chaired as prime minister, where one of the civil servants there you know, described it like the um, prisoner's chorus, in that suddenly cabinet ministers realised that they were allowed to say stuff. <laughs> and so then one did, and then another did, and then they joined in. So that the more collegiate style, I don't think that was a conscious distancing. I think it was a reflection of the very different character type that he was i mean he he is someone with emotional intelligence so getting inside other people's heads how they think behave recognizing actually that most people in politics contrary to the public image of them all having massively secure egos that the majority actually are very insecure and need constant reassurance and involvement uh, he was very good at appreciating that, and it was why his style worked very well in Europe with the European leaders over Maastricht, because listening, understanding, empathising actually works better in European politics than hectoring. Was the 1992 election result a surprise? Like, How confident were you all going into that election? I mean, I, you know, I think you'd have to say it was a surprise. So first of all, everyone in Conservative central office certainly assumed that we were going to lose that election. And most of the media did, and the opinion polls were suggesting it. And so much so that the people at central office were kind of getting their defence in first for a lost election and being quite critical of the campaign that John Major himself was running. I think Jay Major was probably the most confident of the result. And he was very solid and steady and calm throughout. We genuinely had a lot of fun. Everyone stuck back in London in central office were kind of gloomy. They were reading the headlines and saying, oh, we're going to lose. Out on the tour, we were meeting people who gave Major a very warm reaction. And you couldn't work out whether that was just because they were being British and polite and they thought, you know, oh, he's going to lose, but he's not a bad chap, so let's be, let's be nice to him and give him a, a decent kind of burial. Uh, or whether it was actually because he had managed to pull off the trick of kind of continuity and reinvention and also because I think they'd concluded that they weren't ready for Mr Kinnock quite. Things moved on quite quickly in 1992, though, didn't yeah. they? So that election was, what, June? April. April. So April 1992, this sort of stunning victory. He got more votes than any other prime minister in British history. Yep. Before or since? Yeah, quite. Five months later, Black Wednesday happens. Yeah. And the government never really recovered from that. Did it feel like that big an event at the time? He realised it was that big an event. <laughs> with With hindsight... That was a kind of decisive event. Still not convinced it was definitive. I'm sure you know, it would make me look more prescient if I said, yes, I had seen within five minutes that this was now the end. I didn't. And partly that is because when you're dealing with these things, you don't have very long to decide whether your response to something like that is to say, OK, this is a definitive event, therefore we've got to go, we've got to resign, it's all over. Or whether you think, blimey, that didn't go very well, but actually someone's got to reconstruct an economic policy. 
we've got to keep the show on the road, which you, you had to do with interest rate decision and everything else. And let's keep our heads down and get on with it and see where you get to, which, you know, is is often the default position in politics much more than I think people realise. You know, the, the bias amongst politicians to think, oh, well, something might turn up is really very strong. You know, this is a very interesting conversation, but it is it is at times getting a little bit heavy. So to lighten things up a bit, I think we should turn to our second interviewee who, you know, I was genuinely thrilled to me. I was a proper fanboy because his book, Things Can Only Get Better, was a bit of a formative text for me when that came out in the late 1990s. It's the satirist and former writer on Spitting Image, John O'Farrell. Hello, thank you for having me on. You were both writing and working in comedy and, and were in opposition during the Thatcher Major handover. What was the kind of immediate difference in terms of having one of them as a target, as it were? The challenge for us at Spitting Image, where I was working when Major came along, was really having to define him almost from scratch, because he wasn't like Tebbit or uh, Kenneth Baker, who was well-defined in the public eye before uh, he rose to prominence. He was suddenly prime minister, and no one really knew anything about him. And we struggled a bit for the first few weeks. We tried to make him a sort of robot under Mrs. Thatcher's command, and that didn't really work. Um, but Gradually, we, uh, we made a virtue out of his boringness, really. And that, was, um, that sort of stuck in a way that none of us quite anticipated. So you, you had a, a John Major puppet that was entirely grey. Is that correct? Yes. Well, we were sitting around in the production room, and I said, why don't we make him permanently grey and have all the other you know, politicians and uh, cabinet members in bright colours, and he can be grey. And I thought this was going to be a, a special effects that we would do him in black and white and them in colour. I thought it'd be like you know, um, that film Rumblefish, where there's sort of a real technical trick that the cameraman does. But the puppeteers just painted him grey, and it's really worked. And it seems really obvious in retrospect, oh, he's a grey man, they made him grey. But actually, at the time, it looked great, and it really struck a chord. And then we were writing this sketch about the interesting room where he went off to be interesting and he was sitting there eating this meal with Norma Major. We sort of based it on the atmosphere of 84 Charing Cross Road, that sort of austere post-war English awkwardness. And he went off to the interesting room and, you know, partied with Mick Jagger and took drugs and danced and raved and then straightened his tie and went and sat back down with Norma. The bit everyone loved was the bit of him and Norma just eating their peas. And this just weirdly struck a chord with people that he was a man who just had a dinner of peas. So every week we'd do another sketch of him eating peas and Dennis Skinner was standing up at the House of Commons going, have you had your peas yet, John? He was looking around going, what the hell is this? I don't even know what you're talking about. But people would shout it at him in the street, you know, on protest. And it was just one of those weird ways of pinpointing the blandness and the dullness of him was, you know, England's most popular boiled vegetable. He was, I think, kind of... I'm trying not to use too loaded the term, but I think it's probably fair to say that he was underrated in that nobody really expected him to win in 92, right? And then he won pretty convincingly. So the question I'd like to ask is, you know, is that your fault? Do you know what? There was quite a bit of uh, coverage at the time saying that Spitting Image had helped um, the Tories in that election. We had uh, always been banned from doing... A, uh, a show until the polls had closed but that election they let us do on the night before which made me think oh well we're just <laughs> they really think we're impotent so the iba you know sort of supervised our show we had to have exactly the same amount of time covering labor and the tories and the liberals but once we took the mickey out of kinnock and had them farting around we had Kinnock saying winning this election is easy as falling off a log and he just kept failing to fall off a log and he was farting around and it was funny and the stuff we wrote about the Tories was just slightly too cross. And we were sort of saying things about what they'd done to homelessness and how they'd screwed up the economy. And no one was laughing at those bits. And somehow the gentleness with which we had painted Major didn't do him any harm at all. You know, we had Norma going, how do you want your eggs, darling? Splat. You know, he'd get it right in the face because he'd said as usual. Uh, because he'd been pelted by eggs. And I think people just saw him as a sort of charming victim. And we didn't, you know, demur from that. So there was quite a few people saying that that episode the night before sort of endeared people to John Major and made people think Labour were a bunch of prats. I'm probably going to depress both of you now, but um, Mark, that's the first election I have any memories of at all. Oh. Um, 
because uh, I was two and my mum wow. wanted to teach me Neil Kinnock's name because she wanted me to know the next Prime Minister's name. <laughs> and um, I, just refi- I just would not learn it. But I really liked John Major, but he did and does have, weirdly, this quite warm well, sort of anti-charisma almost. Well, uh, you remember just how hateful... Well, actually, you don't remember, but take my word for it that Mrs. Thatcher was incredibly hateful and divisive and patronising and overbearing and hectoring and just really made your blood boil as an activist on the left. So to have this man come along and replace her, and they I remember the cameras trying to take a photo of him when he was a candidate for Downing Street. And he goes, no, not with my back to number 10. I won't do it with my back. And I thought, wow, humility. I'd forgotten that in politicians. And we did a song at speaking, which is called You Just Can't Hate John Major. And it was like frustrating for us on the left that uh, we'd had all these uh, uh, vile Tory cabinet members who had been so sort of done so much damage to the country and done it with such arrogance and sort of uh, contempt for ordinary working people. John Major seemed to be a different kind of animal and that i think was a masterstroke by the tories in putting him in place do you think that he was less damaging in those seven years than thatcher had been in the previous 11 or do you think it was like was was there sort of largely continuity of kind of policy and attitude that was being disguised by this kind of softer image i I think the real attempt to crush the british working class uh if you can put it like that in the sense of the miners' strike and uh, abolishing some of the councils that defended the, you know, ordinary people's interests was done under Thatcher. So I think much of, much of the work was done and the really combative stuff had been achieved by Thatcher. But don't forget the actual mines were closed down under Major, you know, the mines they promised they wouldn't close. Uh, and a lot more else was done. And the recession, of course, that uh, he oversaw did a lot of damage to uh, ordinary working people. But it was the tone that was different, I think, and it was a, felt like less divided times, and it felt like he was listening and he was from uh, an ordinary background. Well, you say an ordinary background, he was the, the first man to run away from the circus to become an accountant, as the, uh, as the line went at the time. But, you know, he, he wasn't posh, he didn't display his animosity to the unions or, you know, Sheffield or whatever. He seemed like he was in politics to make the world a better place according to his view of the world. Did that make being a satirist less fun? No, because uh, because we sort of scored a bullseye with the grey thing and the, um, the eating peas. It sounds ridiculous now, and please believe me, everyone, that it really did make people laugh. Um, and I'm not quite sure why, because we, I thought we had a funny idea with um, Paddy Ashdown, which never took off and never really even got to the edit. So you never know what's going to land. What was interesting in Spitting Image at the time was that the puppeteers got better at acting. So it had been a very Punch and Judy show when it started, and it was all puppets slapping each other in the face and banging their heads on the desk. And that actually suited Thatcher's style of government, that Tebbit had a truncheon you know, and, a, and a leather jacket. By the time uh, she went and Major came, the puppeteers gained in confidence and were much more subtle in their acting. So when we wrote a sketch with just John and Norma seated opposite each other with classical music building. It was almost like a sort of piece of kabuki theatre and the sort of tension building in this marriage that they were so bored with each other. It had a sort of sophistication about it that you'd never have achieved early on. It suited the sort of uh, the gentleness, I suppose, of John Major. So this might just be a hindsight thing. I, because I was a freakish teen, have watched all of the spitting image oh, from... <laughs> And I also know from your book you were surprised by the 1992 election. Yes. But the the weird thing is, is things like um, you know the Go Now yes. song. Yes. And you know Neil Kinnock is going, no, don't you see? I need you to stay. Yes. And the you know as easy as falling off a log. Yes. And the odd thing is, it it felt to me at least, if I hadn't known the, the Everything's Coming Up Roses uh, episode right. you'd written after the result. Like, it felt to me as if you predicted the 1992 election. The 92 result felt like the inevitable consequence of uh, the politicians on screen. Well, that's interesting. In hindsight, do you feel like the 1992 election should have been more obvious? Well, I suppose, yes, in hindsight, of course. Uh, I, you, you look at politician like Neil Kinnock and you think, does he pass that waving on the steps of Downing Street test? And I think the answer was always no. People just couldn't imagine him there. And the son famously said, you know, if he wins, will the last person uh, out of Britain turn out the lights? You know, Labour were sort of only ahead 
on April the 1st, they had three poles that put us ahead that day. It was the cruelest April Fool's trick anyone ever played on me. Labour should have been 20 points ahead at that point with the recession and the, the division in the Tory party. A different leader might have had us further ahead or a different set of policies or a more inspiring sort of manifesto. Who knows what it would have taken? When I came to write, things could only get better. I remember the guy who adapted it, it never got uh, put on telly, but he adapted it and went, you know, there's about five acts in your book. So you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you win. It's like it should be lose, lose, win is the way that these structures normally go. He goes, there's too many defeats. I said, tell me about it. We went through <laughs> it. <you know. laughs> and there's something I really remember from, from the book is that you kind of go through the 90s pretty quickly. You really dwell on everything that happens during the Thatcher years. And after the 92 election, it kind of feels like you disengage a bit. And it's like you just, you're too depressed by the whole thing. And that, so, uh, so yeah. that second is just much, much shorter. It's actually true. I mean, I didn't deliver a leaflet for about a year or two after the 92 election. Uh, I mean, the, the, the chapter after 92 election and things going to get better is called Bacon is Delicious. Because I had been a vegetarian for 10 years and I had sort of, you know, dutifully uh, avoided eating my comrades from the animal kingdom. But when the Tories won for the fourth time, I just thought, I'm, I'm so fed up of trying to change the world. and No one else caring and Britain keeps voting them back in. I really want a bacon sandwich. And I went down to the cafe and, and bought myself some bacon and it was delicious. And all those years of doing what I felt I should do instead of what I wanted to do made me go, hell, I'm gonna start eating meat again. I'm going to stop going to my Labour Party meetings because it's the same now as my five-a-side football. And yeah, there was a sort of conscious disengaging from very committed activism. I wasn't made strong enough stuff to keep taking all those defeats. From doing the research for this, and I, you know, when we talk about the, the history of them at the beginning of the, of the episode, I suddenly realised it is hard to, other than surviving, it is hard to point to an achievement from that. Traffic Cone Hotline. The uh, <laughs> traffic and hotline is what his famous achievement was. Rail, rail privatisation is, I mean, I'm, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as an achievement, but that was a big thing that that government got through. And the closure of the mines under Hesseltine, of course. Uh, the other thing I'd say, the only thing I'd give him credit for, I think, is at least initiating the Northern Ireland peace process. Although he did cock it up again later on and it took Blair to revive it. But that sort of got going, you know, with some overtures from John Hume and uh, a realisation that the sort of military war in Ulster was never going to be won by either side. So I give him credit for that. But winning that election was a huge achievement. He got 14 million votes. That's more votes than Thatcher got, more votes than Blair got, I think. Not sure about that. We all thought it was going to be a hung parliament and he had a majority of, I think, 21, which gradually whittled down. And he clung on and clung on uh, for, for five years, which no one would have predicted. We've talked about how he was sort of underrated by a lot of commentators at the time. Do you think he's... Where, where do you think he stands in the kind of historical record? Do you think we still underrate him or do you think we've kind of perversely and now sort of overrating him because everyone's now like, oh, that John Major was a nice man. Why don't we... Why can't we have Tories like that? Well, I think there's a certain amount of that going on and he's quite sort of strong on... Uh, well, he's made a few comments about Brexit which has made him popular with the, uh, with the Remain side. The centrist dads. The centrist dads. Um... I think that, you know, it's a bit like David Moyes at uh, Manchester United. If you're going to follow Thatcher after 10 years, whoever it is, is going to be uh, in their shadow and is going to be compared to them. And she, you know, whatever you feel about her, definitely changed politics. He did not change politics. He was the right man in the right place at the right time. And as it happens, an incredibly lucky politician. He became a councillor in 68, the only time that the Tories took power uh, in Lambeth. Became an MP at the beginning of the longest period of Conservative rule, you know, in that century, and then rose to prominence just as Thatcher was on the way out. And the Tories wanted to have anyone but Heseltine. He was the next best choice. So he sort of stumbled into it, much the way that Theresa May stumbled into her premiership. People didn't want Johnson. They went for May. People didn't want Heseltine. They went for Major. They do feel... um Similar in an odd way, you know, they're both from more ordinary backgrounds than the average Tory leader. They both, as you say, kind of became leader by default. But the interesting thing, I, when you talked about how at the beginning you had this idea of him as a robot controlled by, mm. uh, by Thatcher and that didn't hold, whereas the May robot did. Mm. And although she got a lot of votes, she was, you know, the 2017 election was not as successful an election <laughs> no, as the 1992 Why is it you think that Major is grey and kind of grey and somehow warm and May has been seen as robotic and kind of cold. I think you can never overestimate charm in politics. When I was writing my history book, 
the difference between Charles I and Charles II in terms of what they did in their attitude to Parliament was pretty similar. But whereas uh, when Parliament complained to Charles I, he tore up their bill in their face. Charles II brought them down to the wine cellars and shared all his wine with them. He had the same sort of contempt for them, but just handled it differently. Now, the thing about Major is I think he probably was quite charming. Uh, he could be petulant and he could be difficult, but those who worked closely with him found him quite uh, easy and good company. Whereas I think May is very hard to be with. I know this because I've stood for Parliament against her uh, in Maidenhead and I've had you know, first-hand experience of her. And she's just not a very warm person, not a very comfortable person in her own skin. And I think people sense that. It comes across on television that she is awkward and that I think people can sniff that a mile off in this modern televisual age. I mean, I kind of cracked jokes about it earlier, but I don't think it was just just the satirist by any means. I think like Major was kind of underrated. He was seen as uh, much more of a no hope than he actually was. Like one of the one of the lines in, in "Things Can Only Get Better" that that still stays with me is just before the '92 election, where you're going around saying, "Oh, he's just Alec Douglas Hume again." Mm, that's right. He'll be, he'll be like a Trivial Pursuit question yeah. that the PM everyone forgets between between Thatcher and Kinnock. Yes, Prime Minister Kinnock. Um, I think yeah, that was my overconfidence at the time that Tories have lost three elections. Thatcher is out, and the parallels with 1964 seemed, you know, quite strong. But we didn't have a Harold Wilson, I suppose. That was the difference. And there wasn't that sense of change. I remember doing a song on Spin Image. Uh, we did a version of the Bob Dylan classic, but it was the times they aren't a changing. And it was all uh, the Tory cabinet dressed up as hippies, but singing that the times they aren't a changing, you know, you had chance for change, but you threw it away. Um, and that was felt for me at that point that Britain would forever be a conservative country, that every election they would be re-elected for decades and decades and decades because if we couldn't get rid of them in 92 with a recession and their division and Europe uh, when were we going to get rid of them it seemed like impossible but the key thing in 92 was that the Tories were still trusted on the economy in 92 which is often then seemed to be the deciding factor and they sort of uh, set about destroying that credibility fairly quickly with Black Wednesday so if you think about you know, that government and how discredited it was from Black Wednesday onwards, which I think was the autumn of 92, with Norman Lamont putting interest rates up to 15%, bundling themselves out of the European exchange rate mechanism. And there's a little teenage, not teenage, 20-something special advisor standing behind Lamont as he's uh, saying what an extraordinary day it's been, and it's uh, David Cameron thinking, I can do better than this. I won't take us out of the ERM. I'll take us crashing out of Europe altogether. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is all very good fun, but let's go back into the room and back to Lord Hill. In that time, you had probably the biggest achievement of the major government, which was the Downing Street Declaration, which obviously changed completely the the picture in terms of Northern Ireland, which Tony Blair was unable to sort of take up and, and successfully help resolve that conflict. You've talked about him a lot as kind of a more traditional conservative. That was a very un, untraditional thing to do. What was the kind of backdrop and thinking behind the scenes around that? I think he felt that it was the right thing to do. Uh, to be honest, this was something for all sorts of understandable reasons, because it was so potentially uh, risky, that he kept very tight. The security implications of that, and personally, the risks were far greater than we now remember. 
There are very few people, I think, who could have got the trust of the different players on that kind of territory and enabled you to get to first base. So I think that's sort of why it became possible. And I agree with you that that set in motion something which, which turned out to be significant and a lasting uh, achievement. But I also think, you know, when history looks back at him, you know, economically, he inherited a situation which had become quite weak. And by 97, he left Labour with a very strong economy, which then enabled them to increase spending on the public sector massively. The Irish peace process started. The opt-out from the single currency, whatever your views on the membership of the euro are or not, without him, we probably would be in the euro uh, because that opt-out was what then gave subsequent people things to work with. The, the cultural memory of that government is that, you know, Black Wednesday happens in September 92 and then after that it's effectively under siege for the better part of five years. Yeah. Did it feel like that at the time or did it always feel like there was a chance of kind of recovery? I think if I try and look back at it from a historical point of view that the 95 leadership contest and what happened after that That was the challenge from John Redwood. The challenge from John Redwood. I think that was a moment where the party could have and John Major could have re-energised and refocused itself and decided it wanted to hang together but it decided it didn't really. And so I would probably say the death of John Smith, bringing in Blair, Blair did lead to a sort of mood shift. You know, John Smith, I think he was a formidable politician, but Tony Blair was certainly better able to capture that desire for change. And then after 95, where first you got the contest and then after it, it kind of went back to business as usual. Then I think it was just downhill all the way to the end. So on my streak to the other kind of big political achievement of that time, successfully negotiating a treaty opposed by large chunks of your own party and opposed somewhat opportunistically by the opposition. Equally, of course, we have now left the European Union and many Eurosceptics see Maastricht as the kind of founding moment. I mean, could that have been handled better or was it, in fact, a great achievement? Was the result of Maastricht from a negotiating point of view something that gave the then British government much more of what they wanted than anyone in Europe thought was possible at the beginning of that process? Yes, it did. You know, opt-outs of the social chapter, opt-outs of the single currency, all of that, people said were undeliverable and they were delivered. <clears throat> the question as to whether Europe was set on a path at Maastricht that one day uh, a majority of British people would vote in a referendum to say they weren't comfortable with, I don't know that one can give a completely clear answer because I think at a more fundamental level, I would say that there's always been a difference of opinion between the British and the Europeans, as to what was going on with Europe. We saw it as an economic project. The Europeans at heart saw it as an economic and political project. You know, when I've tried to make sense of what happened in the referendum, I think the point at which we didn't go into the euro, which personally I thought was the right decision, but at that point you had Europe's second biggest economic power and financial powerhouse of Europe, not in the euro and therefore not in all the most important decisions that were going on with a member state who felt that all the countries that were in the euro were sort of out to try and get it. And so I think that was another point of departure where reconciling those things became harder. But I certainly would accept that the direction that Maastricht started moving in was one that was going to give some people problems. But you could also argue, you know, the whole idea of the single European Act and the, the single market and the rule-taking that came from that, um, for some people, was a problem too. Quickly, how do you think the major government will be seen by history? Do you think it'll be reassessed? I think it's already being reassessed. I mean, I think 
in 97 and thereafter, the instant judgment was very harsh. The scale of the defeat in 97, you know, was so great. And the fact that the whole of the second half of the 90s and the problems that the government was having to deal with was, you know, brilliantly and ruthlessly exploited by Labour. So the snap decision was harsh, particularly on the party management point. I think it's already looking a lot kinder. At the time, the notion was he was preceded by a very dominant prime minister, then succeeded by a very charismatic politician who was going to reshape British politics and our society and the millennium and everything else. I think what the view that has subsequently been formed of Tony Blair and what's been hung around his neck, there isn't a comparable negative, I don't think, around the neck of John Major, period, when they think of it at all. And actually you'd think, okay, so there was a problem with political handling. There was a lot of noise. But at a level of competence and this simple question of was the country actually you know, better off in 97 uh, on a range of indicators than it was in November 1990, um, I think people would say it was. He's, he's not obviously going to be up there with Thatcher and Churchill or Attlee in that sense when we look back. But that period will look like a pretty solid period compared with the 25 years that we're still in. So the thing I find interesting about John Major as a political figure these days is like, you know, at the time he was seen as not necessarily a disaster in himself but certainly someone who presided over a disaster and was like you know holding the conservative party together with both hands in a desperate attempt to stop the, the government falling apart for for five years nearly and now somehow he's kind of morphed into this sort of elder statesman role and like he's talked about as if like he's in you know, this sort of great former prime minister we should all listen to and i'm not entirely certain he's earned that I think it's partly, it's, yeah, if you want a good example of the way the right sort of um, canonizes its history while the left prefers iconoclasm. So, for example, the Downing Street Declaration, which obviously I've said uh, several times, I think, in this episode, is basically the whole of his claim to being more than damage control. A hugely significant step in terms of the peace process. But to read, you know, I mean, Janan Ganesh once essentially claimed that as far as the peace process was concerned, all that was left was for, for Tony Blair to, you know, put a ribbon on it which is just not true or accurate and it's not the position taken by anyone who was in the room right yeah. like ian paisley famously made that goodbye speech to tony blair where you were expecting this sort of butt to come and it never did it was just praise for what he'd done and it's indeed not a position that anyone who, who worked in the room for major uh, holds so he's partly benefited from that i mean i i do also think equally he is the only prime minister in our first set not to have bequeathed a mess to his uh, mm. successor. Tony Blair, I would argue, doesn't quite count because although you can go, he didn't bequeath a mess, it, it's very hard to argue that the financial crisis... I mean, the financial crisis basically starts that week, yeah, doesn't he, it? Yeah, he, he kind of gets out in time, right? So he inherits a very weak economy, utter disaster in terms of public policy, in terms of uh, the poll tax slash community charge, deadlocked peace process in Northern Ireland, party already uh, hugely split and divided over Europe. And he manages in the seven years to bequeath an economy not in a horrendous position. He is able to sign a major and, in my view, significant and positive European treaty in, in, in Maastricht. He's able to do so while achieving, from a Conservative Prime Minister's perspective, important and non-trivial opt-outs as far as the social chapter are concerned. And so it is hard, again, from our kind of own purposes, I think, not to say that he emerges quite well out of this set of prime ministers. Okay, but And yet, as we've already discussed, the public realm was decaying throughout the 90s. You know, the, the, the country had visibly become a more crumbling, meaner place on his watch. And I think also he had a very, very good chancellor i mean i hate to say it but i think ken clark was a very very good chancellor and i think a lot of the economic stuff can be credited to him right i just think that the tories 
tend to look back on him with sort of rose-tinted glasses because he was the last guy to win a significant majority. Obviously, the kind of case for I just made is a conservative case. If you look at it from a kind of a broader case, right, the state of the public realm is impossible, in my view, uh, to rescue his reputation from. And this kind of way that he sort of managed to kind of emerge as this kind of cuddly, almost apolitical figure. We didn't talk very much about Back to Basics in this episode. But, I mean, ultimately, this is the, you know, understand a little less, condemn a little more. The last government to wage an all-out rhetorical uh, war on, on lone parent families. Yes, we didn't talk about single parents yeah. at all on this episode. Which is ironic, really, considering our own uh, respective families were actually massive failures when you think about <laughs> it. But, yeah, and, and so all of that, I think, yeah, there is this weirdness where, like, people kind of, yeah, this was the last gasp of a, a socially conservative uh, conservatism. Next time, it's the big one, the one we've been building up to. Alec Douglas home? Maggie, Maggie, Maggie. Out, out, out. You've been listening to Prime Ministerial with me, Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman. And me, John Elledge, author of The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. With special thanks to Caroline Crampton and Nick Hilton. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.